Hello, everyone, and welcome back to 1001 Stories for the Road. This is our part six. Welcome to part six of Captain John Smith and Jamestown, the real story. And it's a very illuminating chapter as it discusses a number of topics, mostly having to do with micromanagement from afar. In other words, King James's screw-ups when it came to the goals of this colonization effort and how it was done. We'll learn in this chapter that Radcliffe has been deposed as president, not only because he'd made a lot of screw-ups, but discovering he'd been using a false name all the time, and for what reasons we're never told. It's the fall of 1608, and Smith has just returned from his voyages of discovery up through the bay. His major worries included finding out when he got back that their store of food has rotted, which leaves them having to go back out to procure enough corn so they don't starve for the winter. What isn't mentioned in this account is that their storage area has been sabotaged, this being the second time you might remember the fire in the food storage area in late 1607. It was only years later that they found out that there was a Spanish spy in their midst. I think his name was Kendall. And they hung him. They didn't include the fact that he was a spy in any of their accounts because they didn't want Spain finding out that they'd lost their contact. This story is very interesting because it provides a great example of how King James was mucking things up out of pure incompetence, ordering Newport to bring builders to build a house for Powhatan, then provide him with a boatload of gifts, and then coronate him as a king. And Newport, who was acting like King James's lackey boy, was only too happy to do all this. Well, this drove Smith out of his mind, because these actions ruined any idea of having a fair trade with the Indians from this point on. The value of some copper and a few beads, now worth nothing if the king could get all this for nothing. And that causes Smith to write a letter of serious complaint back to England, and as you might expect, it wasn't received well there. Also in this chapter, Powhatan, feeling that Smith is no longer useful to him, as he can now get anything he wants by asking Newport to tell the great white father to give it to him. And who knows, maybe more houses, maybe some swords and muskets, maybe some cannon. Powhatan now plans to slaughter Smith and his men. But Smith, is worn by a faithful friend. And now, part six, our story, the real story of Jamestown and Captain Smith. The discoverers found on their return that many of the colonists had died, some had recovered, and others were still sick. The late president, Captain Ratcliffe, had been imprisoned for mutiny, while Mr. Scribner had fulfilled his trust faithfully. Under his direction, the corn harvest had been gathered, though much of the colony's provision was spoiled by the leakage of their poor storehouse. On the 10th of September, Captain Smith was installed as president. He governed the colony wisely. His measures were doubtless severe, but severity was necessary among these men, totally unqualified for a frontier life, with an unwise management in England, an endless discontent and jealousy at Jamestown, into the merits of the childish squabbles of the colonists, who have perpetuated themselves in their writings and broken out afresh among historians in our time. Doubtless there was some wrong on all sides. Men shut up together in hard circumstances are sure to fall out. Captain Smith went energetically to work to better the condition of the colony. Jamestown was once more the scene of busy activity. Church and storehouse were repaired. New houses built for more supplies, and the fort altered in form. The soldiers were drilled every day upon a plain called Smithfield, 
Here, crowds of Indians would gather to watch with wonder the Englishmen shoot at a mark. It was now the season to trade for corn with the Indians. The boats were prepared, and George Percy was sent on a trading expedition. They had not gone far, however, before they met Captain Newport with a second supply from England. He brought Percy's company back to Jamestown with him, as he had planned a voyage of discovery. Captain Newport had undertaken to return to England with either a lump of gold, the discovery of a passage to the South Sea, or a member of the lost colony of Roanoke. The folly of the council in their management of a far distant colony was made very manifest in this second supply. A crown was sent over, which Powhatan was to be crowned, and a basin, and a ewer, bed, bedstead, and a suit of scarlet clothes as presents to the American king. Captain Newport also brought a great cumbersome boat, which the colonists were to carry across the Blue Ridge and launch in the South Sea. As heretofore, most of the newly arrived adventurers were white-handed gentlemen. The first women of the colony, Mrs. Forrest and her maid Anna Burris, came in this vessel. Among the seventy adventurers of this supply were eight Poles and Germans, sent out to make tar, glass, and soap ashes. For the members of the London Company were determined to have some kind of immediate return from the struggling infant colony for the money which had been laid out upon it. As most of the colonists who had gone to Virginia were in expectation of immediately stumbling on wealth, so most of those who had joined the London Company expected an immediate return for their investment. Newport brought a severe letter from the disappointed council to those who might be in power in Virginia. The president probably wished to supply with the great boat, basin, ewer, bed, bedstead, scarlet clothes, and crown, safely home again. He spoke his mind freely in the colony's council, which had now two new members, Captain Peter Wynne and Captain Richard Waldo, ancient soldiers and valiant gentlemen. He considered it folly to make these presents to an Indian who would be as well pleased with a few beads and some copper. In his opinion, it was unwise to undertake the discovery of the South Sea when it was the proper time to procure food for the winter. Captain Newport, however, promised to procure corn of the Indians for them and thought that Smith was only trying to hinder his journey of discovery. The council overruled Smith. Supplies for the winter were neglected, and a hundred and twenty picked men were allotted to Newport for his discovery. The latter was apprehensive that the Indians might take revenge on him for what he considered the cruelty of Captain Smith in his previous dealings with the Indians. The president, to quiet all fears and to show his willingness to assist in the business on hand, as well as to hasten an affair which would consume so much valuable time, undertook with four companions a journey to Werowacomico to ask Powhatan to come to Jamestown and receive his presence. When the Englishmen reached the home of Powhatan, they found that he was some thirty miles away. They were received by a steadfast friend of all white men, Pocahontas. She sent messengers for her father, and she undertook to entertain her friends while they waited. The Englishmen were left in an open space, seated on a mat by the fire. Suddenly they heard a hideous noise in the woods. 
Supposing that Powhatan and his warriors were upon them, they sprang to their feet, grasped their muskets, and seized two or three old Indians who were standing near them. Pocahontas came to them, however, with her apology, saying that they might kill her if any hurt were intended. All who stood near, men, women, and children, assured the white men that all was right. Presently, thirty young women came rushing out of the woods. Their only covering was a cincture or apron of green leaves. They were brightly painted, some one color and some another. Every girl wore a pair of deer's horns on her head, while from her girdle and upon one arm hung an otter's skin. The leader wore a quiver of arrows and carried a bow and arrow in her hands. The others followed with swords, clubs, and potsticks. These fiends, with most hellish shouts and cries, says the ungallant narrator, cast themselves in a ring about the fire, singing and dancing with most excellent ill variety. This masquerade lasted about a half an hour, when the Indian girls disappeared as they had come. They again reappeared in their ordinary costume. Pocahontas invited Captain Smith to a dinner which had been spread for him with all the savage dainties which they could procure. They tormented the captain by pressing round him, saying, Love you not me? Love you not me? While he feasted, they danced, and ended by conducting him to his lodging with firebrands for torches. Powhatan arrived the next day, and Captain Smith delivered his message. If your king has sent me presents, said Powhatan, I also am a king, and this is my land. Eight days will I stay to receive them. Your father, Captain Newport, is come to me, not I to him, nor yet to your fort, neither will I bite at such a bait. He drew rude maps on the ground and described the countries through which Captain Newport intended to pass. But for any salt water beyond the mountains, said Powhatan, the stories you have had from my people are false. Some complimentary courtesy passed between the chief and the president, but Captain Smith was obliged to carry this dignified answer to Jamestown. The presents were accordingly sent around by water in the boats to the haughty chief. Captains Newport and Smith, with fifty men, crossed over by land and met them at Werewokomoko. The day following their arrival was appointed for the ceremony of Powhatan's coronation. The basin and ewer were presented to him. His bedstead was set up, and the English endeavored to persuade him to put on the scarlet suit and cloak. The chief, however, looked upon them with suspicion, and would not consent to wear them until Namontak, the boy whom he had given to Captain Newport, and who had been in England, assured him that they would not hurt him. The coronation, however, caused more ado. Powhatan had no appreciation of the honor these people intended to do him, and he could on no account be persuaded to kneel. A long time the English coaxed him, instructing him by word and action how he should bow. We can imagine these English gentlemen dropping on their knees by way of example before the stubborn savage. It was all of no avail. Powhatan would not even bend the knee. His instructors were at last tired out. They contented themselves with bearing very hard upon his shoulders until he stooped a little. The crown was then hastily placed on his head by three men. A signal was given, a volley of shot was fired from the boats, 
and Powhatan sprang up in consternation. This part of the ceremony was explained to him, and he became quiet. He now thought it fitting that he should make a suitable return for all these honors. This he did by graciously presenting Captain Newport with his old moccasins and mantle. It has been calculated that all this display would induce the great chief to aid Captain Newport in his imposing expedition in search of the South Sea. The making of these ostentatious presents to a mere savage chief may be attributed to the ever-meddling folly of King James with his belief in the divine rights of royalty. The wisdom of the policy is shown by the fact that Powhatan now refused to give Newport either men or guides for his journey and tried to divert him from his purpose. His return for the costly gifts was but some seven or eight bushels of corn. The narrative of these events in Smith's history says that the presence had been much better spared than so ill spent, for we had Powhatan's favor much better only for a plain piece of copper, till this stately kind of soliciting made him so much overvalue himself that he respected us as much as nothing at all. And oh, Captain Smith was so right. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. We need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Newport now set out on his voyage to the Pacific Ocean with 120 men led by Captain Waldo, Lieutenant Percy, Captain Wynne, Mr. West, a brother of Lord Delaware, and Mr. Scribner. They arrived at the falls of the James River, where Richmond now stands, and started by land with their boat. They marched some 40 miles in two days and a half, discovered two Indian villages, where we are not surprised to hear that the Indians remained entirely neutral, seized a chief, or king as they styled him, and led him bound as a guide. They returned on their own path, searching in many places where they thought they discovered mines. They spent some time in refining, having a refiner fitted for that purpose, and returned to the falls where the Indians, who were anxious to get well rid of their visitors, told them that ships were coming into the bay to attack Jamestown. The Indians refused to trade, and thus ended the great expedition for the discovery of a passage to the South Sea, some 40 miles west of Richmond, Virginia. Immediately upon the return of the explorers, Smith set every well man to work to hasten the reloading of the vessel. Parties were sent out to make glass, tar, pitch, and the soap ashes, while Smith went with thirty gentlemen some five miles into the woods to fell trees and make clapboards. The work was undertaken with a cheerful spirit. Sleeping in the woods was a pleasant novelty, and these gentlemen made it their delight to hear the trees thunder as they fell. Smith lodged, ate, drank, worked, and played with the rest. These amateur woodmen had one trouble. Axes would blister their tender hands, and it often happened that every third blow had an oath to drown the echo. Captain Smith undertook to cure this sin. He had every man's oaths counted and recorded. At night a can of water was poured down the sinner's sleeve 
for every oath that had escaped him during the day. It is recorded that in consequence of this rather sharp method, profanity became rare among the woodchoppers. These gentlemen were anxious not to be considered common woodhaggers, and wished to have it understood that after they became inured to it, they considered it but a pleasure and a recreation. It was said that thirty or forty voluntary gentlemen laborers could do more than one hundred of the indolent gentlemen of Jamestown would do when forced to it, but still twenty good workmen would have been better than all of them, according to Smith. When Captain Smith had returned from his woodchopper's camp, he resolved to make an expedition in search of corn. Taking with him two barges, he went to the country of the Chickahominy Indians. This dogged nation, however, knowing all too well the wants of the colony, answered all overtures for friendly trade with corn with scorn and insolence. Captain Smith saw that it was the policy of the much-honored Powhatan to starve the English. He told the Indians that their corn had not been so much the object of his journey, but that he had come to revenge his imprisonment and the death of his men. He landed and prepared for a charge, but the Indians fled. They soon sent ambassadors with presents of corn, fish, and game, and a desire to make peace. The result was that the boats were laden with corn, and they parted good friends. It is alleged that the sailors, while at Jamestown, made use of many indirect means for trading with the colonists, getting in this way valuable furs to sell in England. Captain Newport's vessel is called Our Old Tavern, in the account given in Smith's history. Meantime, Mr. Scribner went on a trading expedition to Werewakomoko. The savages were at first disposed to fight, but Mr. Scribner managed them so wisely that he procured three or four hogsheads of corn. Captain Newport was now ready to sail with samples of various commodities which the colonists had undertaken to make, and the President, Smith, wrote a very plain letter in answer to the London Company's letter. This was America's first impudence to the mother country a defiance that began in her very babyhood. I received your letter, wrote Captain Smith, wherein you write that our minds are so set upon faction and idle conceits in dividing the country without your consents that we feed you with ifs and ands, hopes and some few proofs, as if we could keep the mystery of the business to ourselves, and that we must expressly follow your instructions sent by Captain Newport the charge of whose voyage amounts to near two thousand pounds, the which, if we cannot defray by the ship's return, we are like to remain as banished men. To these particulars I humbly entreat your pardons if I offend you with my rude answer. For our factions, unless you would have me run away and leave the country, I cannot prevent them, because I do make many stay that would else fly any whither. For the idle letter sent to my lord of Salisbury by the president and his confederates for dividing the country, etc., etc., what it was I know not, for you saw no hand of mine to it, nor ever dreamt I of any such a matter. That we feed you with hopes, etc., though I be no scholar, I am past a schoolboy, and I desire but to know what either you and these here do know, but have learned to tell you by the continual hazard of my life. I have not concealed from you anything I know, but I fear some cause you to believe much more than is true. Expressly to follow your directions by Captain Newport, though they be performed 
I was directly against it, but according to your commission, I was content to be overruled by the major part of the council. I fear greatly to the hazard of us all, which is now generally confessed when it is too late. Only Captain Wynne and Captain Waldo I have sworn to the council, and crowned Powhatan according to your instructions. For the charge of this voyage of two or three thousand pounds, we have not received the value of an hundred pounds. And for the quartered boat to be borne by the soldiers over the falls, Newport had one hundred and twenty of the best men he could choose. If he had burnt her to ashes, one might have carried her in a bag. But as she is, five hundred men cannot, to a navigable place, above the falls. In other words, there is no South Sea. And for him at that time to find the South Sea, a mine of gold, or any of them sent out by Sir Walter Raleigh at our consultation, I told them was as likely as the rest. But during this great discovery of thirty miles, which might as well have been done by one man, and much more for the value of a pound of copper at a seasonable time, they had the pinnace and all the boats with them but one that remained with me to serve the fort. In their absence I followed the new-begun works of pitch and tar, glass, soap ashes, and clapboard, whereof some small quantities we have sent you. But if you rightly consider what an infinite toil it is in Russia and Swetland, where the woods are proper for nothing else, and though there be help both of man and beast in these ancient commonwealths which many an hundred years have used it, yet thousands of these poor people can scarce get necessaries to live, but from hand to mouth. And though your factors there can buy as much in a week as will fraught you a ship or as much as you please, you must not expect from us any such matter, which are but as many of ignorant, miserable souls that are scarce able to get wherewith to live and defend ourselves against the inconstant savages, finding but here and there a tree fit for the purpose and want all things else the Russians have. For the coronation of Powhatan, by whose advice you sent him such presents, I know not, but this give me leave to tell you. I fear they will be the confusion of us all ere we hear from you again. At your ship's arrival, the savages' harvest was newly gathered, and we going to buy it, our own not being sufficient for so great a number. As for the two ships' loading of corn, Captain Newport promised to provide us from Powhatan, but only brought us fourteen bushels and from the Monacans, nothing, but the most of the men sick and near famished. From your ship we had not provision in victuals worth twenty pounds, and we are more than two hundred to live upon this, the one half sick and the other little better. For the sailors, I confess, they daily made good cheer. But our diet is a little meal and water, and not sufficient of that. Though there be fish in the sea, fowls in the air, and beasts in the woods, their bounds are so large, they so wild, and we so weak and ignorant, we cannot much trouble them. Captain Newport we much suspect to be the author of these inventions. Now that you should know I have made you as great a discovery as he for less charge than he spendeth you every meal, I have sent you this map of the bays and rivers with an annexed relation of the countries and nations that inhabit them, as you may see at large. Also two barrels of stones, and such as I take to be good iron ore at the least, so divided as by their notes you may see in what places I found them. 
The soldiers say many of your officers maintain their families out of what you sent us, and that Captain Newport hath an hundred pounds a year for carrying news. For every master you have sent can find the way as well as he, so that an hundred pounds might be spared, which is more than we have all that helps to pay him wages. Captain Radcliffe's real name has been found to be Sicklemore, a poor, counterfeit imposter. I've sent him home lest the company should cut his throat. What he is, now everyone can tell you. If he and Archer return again, they are sufficient to keep us always in factions. When you do send more people, I entreat you to rather send but thirty carpenters, husbandmen, gardeners, fishermen, blacksmiths, masons, and diggers up of trees' roots. Well provided, than a thousand of such as the men we have. For except we be able to both lodge and feed them, the most will consume with want of necessaries before they can be made good for anything. Thus, if you please to consider this account and the unnecessary wages to Captain Newport or his ships so long lingering and staying here, for notwithstanding his boasting to leave us victuals for twelve months, though we, eighty-nine, by this discovery lame and sick, and but a pint of corn a day for a man, we were constrained to give him three hogsheads of that to victual him on his way home, or yet to send into Germany or Poland for glass men, and the rest till we are able to sustain ourselves and relieve them when they come. It were better to give five hundred pound a ton for these gross commodities in Denmark than send for them hither, till more necessary things be provided. For in over-toiling our weak and unskillful bodies to satisfy this desire of present profit on your part, we can scarce ever recover ourselves from one supply to another. And I humbly entreat you thereafter, let us know what we should receive, and not stand to the sailors' courtesy to leave us what they please. Else you may charge us what you will, but we, not you, with anything. These are the causes that have kept us in Virginia from laying such a foundation that ere this might have given much better content and satisfaction. But as yet, you must not look for any profitable returns. So I humbly rest. And the writers of their book now make their comment to Smith's letter. Marvelous good common sense is this. It is the fashion of late years to revile Smith for a boaster. But where can we find prudence and sound sense in all this miserable management but from him? No wonder that he esteemed his service highly. Common sense was so scarce in Jamestown and in London. The next inner chapter, chapter 20, Expeditions for Corn. Cold weather had come, and famine began to stare the colonists in the face. Taking with him Captain Wynne and Mr. Scribner with three boats, Smith set out for the country of the Nansamond Indians. These people refused not only to provide the 400 bushels of corn which they had promised in their treaty with the colonists on their previous visit, but they refused to trade at all. Their excuse was that they had used up the most that they had had, and that they were under commands from Powhatan neither to trade with the English nor to allow them to enter their river. The English had recourse to force, and the Indians fled at the first volley of musketry without shooting a single arrow. The first cabin the white men discovered they set on fire. The Indians immediately desired peace and promised the English half of what they had. Before night, all the boats were loaded with corn, and the English sailed some four miles down the river. 
Here they camped out for the night in the open woods on frozen ground covered with snow. The manner in which these adventurers of nearly 300 years ago made themselves comfortable is interesting. They would dig away the snow and build a great fire, which would serve to dry and warm the ground. They would then scrape away the fire, spread a mat on the place where it had been, and here they would sleep with another mat hung up as a shield against the wind. In the night, as the wind shifted, they would change their hanging mat, and when the ground grew cold, they would again remove their fire and take its place. Their story says that many a cold winter night did the adventurers sleep thus, and yet those who went on these expeditions were always in health, lusty, and well-fed. About this time, the first marriage in Virginia took place. The one single woman in Jamestown would naturally not remain long unmarried. Anne Burris was married to John Layden, a laborer, and one of the earliest colonists. Almost immediately after his return, Captain Smith started on another expedition in search of corn, knowing they would need it for the winter. As they sailed, the Indians fled from them until they discovered the Appomattox, a tributary of the James River. The natives had not much corn, but they divided what they had, for which they were amply requited with copper and trinkets. Knowing that the old Indian chief Powhatan had determined to starve the colony out of existence by a refusal to trade with the white men, Captain Smith, appreciating the desperate extremity, resolved to take, as usual, the boldest plan out of the difficulty. He mediated a plan for surprising and entrapping Powhatan into his power. Smith saw no other chance to procure food, and starving men do not stop to debate whether a course is right or wrong. About this time, Powhatan sent a message to Smith inviting him to visit him, and saying that if he would but build Powhatan a house, give him a grindstone, fifty swords, some firearms, a hen and a rooster, and much beads and copper, he would fill the ship with corn. Captain Smith made haste to accept this offer. He sent some of the Dutchmen and some Englishmen ahead to begin the building of Powhatan's house. The barge and the pinnace were fitted up for this expedition. Smith, with twelve men, sailed in the barge, while fifteen men, among whom were Lieutenant Percy and Mr. West, brother of Lord Delaware, sailed in the pinnace. This party started from Jamestown in December of 1608. They stopped for that first night at a village at the village of Warosquick. They were treated very kindly by the chief of this town, who advised them not to visit Powhatan. Smith, however, was determined to go. Captain Smith said the chief. You shall find Powhatan to use you kindly, but trust him not, and be sure he have no opportunity to seize on your arms, for he hath sent for you only to cut your throats. Smith thanked him for his advice and resolved to follow it. He asked this chief for guides to the Chihuahuanoc Indians. The chief immediately complied with his request, and Captain Smith sent Mr. Michael Sicklemore, a valiant soldier, with the guides to this place in search of Sir Walter Raleigh's lost company and silk grass, or Peminaw. What is said of the people of the lost colony by different writers is quite hard to understand. Sometimes they seem to have been all exterminated. But again we hear rumors that some of them may still be alive. When Captain Smith parted with the friendly chief, he left him his page to learn the language. The next night the English lodged at Kickatan, present-day Hampton. 
Here they were storm-bound for about a week. They were thus obliged to keep Christmas at this Indian village, and a merry time they had of it. They feasted upon fish, venison, wild fowl, with the sweet cornbread of the country, and enjoyed themselves round great fires in the warm, smoky cabins of the Indians. Traveling on from here, the English were forced, when they could find no cabins, to sleep in the woods as we have described. During the journey, Captain Smith, Anthony Bagnall, and Sergeant Pising shot 148 wild fowl at one time. At the Indian village of Kiskiak, the English were again forced by the cold and contrary winds to spend several days in Indian cabins. These Indians were not friendly, and the whites were obliged to guard their barge with care. On the 12th of January, 1609, the English neared Werowacomico. The ice extended nearly half a mile from the shore in the York River. Captain Smith pushed as near the shore as he could in the barge by breaking the ice. Impatient of remaining in an open boat in the freezing cold, he jumped into the half-frozen marsh and waded ashore. His example was followed by 18 of his men, among whom was a Mr. Russell, who could not be persuaded to stay behind, although he was a very heavy man and somewhat ill. This gentleman so overtoiled himself that it was with difficulty that his comrades got him ashore and restored warmth to his benumbed body. The English quartered at the first cabins they reached and announced their arrival in a message to Powhatan, requesting provision. The chief sent them plenty of bread, venison, and turkeys, and feasted them according to his custom. The following day, however, he desired to know when they would be gone, pretending that he had not sent for the English. He made the astonishing statement that he himself had no corn, and his people had much less, but that he would furnish them forty baskets of this grain for as many swords. Captain Smith quickly confronted him with the men who had brought Powhatan's message to Jamestown, and asked the chief how it chanced that he had become so forgetful. Powhatan answered with a merry laughter, and invited the English to show their commodities. But the crafty chief was not suited with anything, unless it were guns or swords. He would value a basket of corn higher than a basket of copper. Powhatan, said Captain Smith, though I had many courses to have made my provision, yet believing your promises to supply my wants, I neglected all to satisfy your desire, and to testify my love I sent you my men for your building, neglecting my own. What your people had, you have engrossed, forbidding them our trade. And now you think by consuming the time we shall consume for want, not having to fulfill your strange demands. As for swords and guns, I told you long ago I had none to spare, and you must know those I have can keep me from want. Yet steal or wrong you I will not, nor dissolve that friendship we have mutually promised, except you constrain me by your bad usage. Powhatan listened attentively to this speech, and promised that he would spare them what he could, which he would deliver them in two days. Yet, Captain Smith, said Powhatan, I have some doubt of your coming hither that makes me not so kindly seek to relieve you as I would for many do inform me your coming hither is not for trade, but to invade my people and possess my country, who dare not bring you corn, seeing you thus armed with your men. To free us of this fear, 
leave aboard your weapons, for here they're needless, we being all friends. But Captain Smith was not to be cajoled into a council without weapons. That night was spent at Werewakomako, and the following day the building of Powhatan's house went forward. The Dutchman, seeing the plenty of Powhatan and his power, and thinking the colony would not long withstand the wily chief, had betrayed the English, though this was not discovered until some six months later. Meanwhile, the English managed to wrangle some ten bushels of corn out of the chief for a copper kettle. Powhatan then made a speech setting forth the advantages of remaining at peace with the colony. Captain Smith, said he, you may understand that I, having seen the death of my people thrice, and not any one living of these three generations but myself, I know the difference of peace and war better than any in my country. Some trading was again begun. The chief was dissatisfied that he could not have his way. Captain Smith, said Powhatan with a sigh, I never used any werewant so kindly as yourself, yet from you I received the least kindness of any. Captain Newport gave me swords, copper, clothes, a bed, towels, or what I desired, ever taking what I offered him, and would send away his guns when I entreated him. None doth deny to lie at my feet, or refuse to do what I desire. But only you, of whom I can have nothing but what you regard not, and yet you will have whatsoever you demand. Captain Newport you call father, and so you call me. But I see for all of us both you will do what you list, and we must both seek to content you. But if you intend so friendly as you say, send hence your arms, that I may believe you. For you see the love I bear you doth cause me thus nakedly to forget myself. The wily old chief was right. Captain Smith was determined to have his own way. He saw that nothing could be gained thus. Powhatan was watching with lynx eyes for a chance to get the white man into his power while he delivered those eloquent and persuasive speeches which are so characteristic of Indians. Captain Smith asked the savages to break the ice for him that his boat might reach the shore to take him and the corn. He intended, when the boat came, to land more men and surprise the chief. Meanwhile, to entertain Powhatan and keep him from suspecting anything, he made the following reply to his last speech. Powhatan, you must know, as I have but one god, I honor but one king, and I live not here as your subject, but as your friend, to pleasure you with what I can. By the gifts you bestow on me, you gain more than by trade. Yet would you visit me as I do you? You should know it is not our custom to sell our courtesies as a vendable commodity. Bring all your country with you for your guard. I will not dislike it as being overjealous. But to content you, tomorrow I will leave my arms and trust to your promise. I call you father. Indeed, and as a father you shall see I will love you. But the small care you have for such a child caused my men to persuade me to look out for myself. But Powhatan was not to be fooled. His mind was on the fast disappearing ice. He managed to disengage himself from the captain's conversation and secretly fled with his women, children, and luggage. To avoid any suspicion, two or three women were left to engage Captain Smith in talk while the Powhatan warriors beset the house where they were. When Captain Smith discovered what they were doing, 
he and John Russell went about making their way out with the help of their pistols, swords, and Indian shields. At the first shot, the savages tumbled one over another and quickly fled in every direction, and the two men reached their companions in safety. Powhatan saw that his strategy had failed. He immediately tried to remove the unfavorable impression which this event and the sudden appearance of so many warriors might make on the minds of the English. He sent an ancient orator to Captain Smith with presents of a great bracelet and a chain of pearls. Captain Smith, said the Indians, our werowance has fled, fearing your guns, and knowing when the ice was broken, there would come more men. He sent these numbers but to guard his corn from stealing. That might happen without your knowledge. Now, though some be hurt by your misprison, yet Powhatan is your friend, and so will forever continue. Now, since the ice is open, he would have you send away your corn, and if you should have his company, send away also your guns, which so affrighteth his people that they dare not come to you as he promised they should. The Indians provided baskets that the English might carry their corn to their boat. They were very officious in tendering their services to guard the colonists' arms while they were thus occupied, lest anyone should steal them. There were crowds of these grim, sturdy savages about, but the sight of the white men cocking their matchlock guns rendered them exceedingly meek. They were easily persuaded by this sight to leave their bows and arrows in charge of the Englishmen, while they themselves carried the corn down to the boats on their own backs. This they did with wonderful dispatch. Ebb tide left the boat stuck in the marsh, and the adventurers were obliged to remain at Werowacomico until high water. They returned to the cabins where they were at first quartered. The savages entertained them until night with merry sports and then left them. Powhatan was gathering his forces and planning the certain destruction of all the visitors. The English were alone in the Indian cabins. Suddenly Pocahontas, Powhatan's dearest jewel and daughter, appeared before Captain Smith. She had come the dark night through the inksome woods, alone from her father's cabin. Captain Smith, said she, great cheer will be sent you by and by, but Powhatan and all the power he can make will after come and kill you all. If they that bring you the cheer do not kill you first with your own weapons when you're at supper. Therefore, if you would live, I wish you presently to leave. Captain Smith wished to give Pocahontas presents of these trifles dear to the heart of an Indian, and such as Pocahontas most delighted in. I dare not, said she, with tears running down her cheeks, be seen to have any, for if Powhatan should know it, I am but dead. Then she ran away into the woods as she had come. Within less than an hour, eight or ten lusty savages came, bringing great platters of venison and other food. They begged the Englishmen to put out the matches to their guns, for the smoke made them sick, and to sit down and eat. But the captain was vigilant. He made the Indians first taste of every dish, and he then sent them back to Powhatan, asking him to make haste, for he was awaiting his arrival. Soon after more messengers came to see what news, in the words of the story, and they were followed in a short time by still more. Thus the night was spent by both parties with the utmost vigilance, though to all appearances they were on very friendly terms. When high tide came, the English prepared to depart. At Powhatan's request, they left a man named Edward Brinton to hunt for him, while the Dutchman remained to finish his house. 
on an eminence near where Wokomoko must have been, still stands a stone chimney which is known to this day as Powhatan's Chimney, and according to tradition is the chimney of the house which the colonists erected for this chief. The English pushed on to Pamunkey in search of corn, hoping that upon their return the frost would be gone, and if Powhatan still gave occasion, a better opportunity might be found to subdue his pride. If the actions of Smith seem sometimes lacking in good faith, we must remember that the desperate position of this little colony entrusted to his care, and the extreme difficulty of dealing with Indians in such circumstances. Thank you for joining us at 1001 Stories for the Road. Apple listeners, please do take a moment to send us a review if you're enjoying this show. We would appreciate it very much. Thank you, and we'll see you next week with Part 7.